And I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Welcome back to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast and Donna Lauren's autobiography. Donna's preteen and early teen years in the 1960s screened shame and success. Whilst Paul, George, Ringo and John were shattering pop charts with I Want to Hold Your Hand, Donna's pop ditty, Hands Off, illustrated a culture steeped in duplicity. Go, Donna. Chapter 3, Hands Off When I finished grammar school at the end of the sixth grade, my parents and I had another meeting. We sat at the dining room table, our usual place for these meetings, and my parents started, We think that rather than you go on to public junior high school, now it's the time for you to make the change and go to a professional school. We don't know if you're going to be working steadily, but that's our hope. So you'll be in the right place if you have to take days off and do your required school subjects at a studio. The choice was made to enroll me in Hollywood Professional School, which was very far away from my home. I normally woke up super early anyway at 4.30 or 5, but now the pressure was on to take the daily journey to Hollywood. Added to this was my mother's obsession to leave an impression on me before I left for the long, long day. I had a long ponytail. My mother's controlling nature dictated that she wouldn't let me leave for school until she would comb through the knots of my hair and then pull it straight back using a rubber band to tie in a tight ponytail. Her actions toward me chipped away at my spirit. Sometimes Maury would drive me to school, but mostly Other times, he would drop me off at the bus stop at 6.30 or 7 in the morning on the corner of Grandview and Venice Boulevards. I would board a bus that would take me the 40 minutes to Western Avenue and then get on to a second bus that would take me the rest of the way to Hollywood Boulevard, where Hollywood Professional School was located. My parents instilled the fear of being kidnapped, and yet they decided to let me travel this far alone These inconsistencies confused the hell out of me, but I accepted their contradiction for my fear of abandonment. Traveling on the bus by myself after their programming of the fear of being taken by a strange man perpetuated the confusion in me, which I realize now was a major contributor to their ability to control me. I was operating in a chaotic climate. On the first bus, I would sit right behind the bus driver who for one whole year made me feel safe. We never spoke, but he generated a kindness and familiarity resembling Sammy Davis Jr. One class I had in Hollywood Professional School was very beneficial as well as memorable. I had a drama class and my teacher was Queenie Smith, who many years later had a cool part in the movie Foul Play, starring Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase. In a scene where Goldie is running away from the albino, she loses one shoe while taking refuge from rain on a fire escape. Leaning over the railing as her shoe falls, she peers into a window. A bit of comic relief follows when she sees two ladies in their senior years playing a game of Scrabble. The scene lingers to watch one of the actresses, my drama coach, Queenie, make a move that spells mm, mother F-U-C-K-E-R, which won her the game. I learned a great deal about myself in Queenie Smith's class. She had us reading Strasbourg for acting methods. I remember an exercise of pretending to be blind. At night, I would practice closing my eyes and trying to walk about without bumping into any objects. The method taught how to heighten other senses when one is missing. A great example of this was how Patty Duke portrayed Helen Keller in The Miracle Worker. One day in class, 
All the students were asked to improvise a sketch, and when it came to my turn, I nervously stood in front of my classmates and began my improvisation with how it felt to be in a dentist's chair. First, my thought went to being in the chair and forcing my mouth to open wide. When I opened my mouth, it made me feel like gagging. Emotions got the best of me and I actually started to gag. I was recalling the white knuckle experiences since around age seven, having fillings with no Novocaine. My classmates applauded being led by Queenie herself. What I came away with was a boost in confidence that I might be able to act. I was always recording or performing and regularly attended auditions, but there was a bit of a void for a while after the Mickey Mouse Club. It's that awkward age from 11 or 12 for anybody. My feet were bigger than my legs and my face was starting to change. My, my hair was really long. I remember my favorite song to sing was In Between by Judy Garland. I'm too old for toys and too young for boys. I'm just an in-between. I was dying to wear a bra, the littlest tiny bra, just anything that would make me feel grown up. I had my first period. My mother hadn't prepared me and neither school nor anybody I knew had ever talked about it. I thought that I was bleeding to death and locked myself in the bathroom, waiting for it to stop. When it didn't, finally, I told my mother. The exception to this somewhat of a lull in my career was a small part in Playhouse 90, written by Rod Serling and starring Charles Lawton and Robert Redford. My ethnic appearance won me the role of a refugee in the Warsaw Ghetto. I was also booked to sing at a dance held at a Mormon temple. All the kids there were my age. The temple's rule was all girls wear white dresses. I had started to learn to sew in a sewing machine, which actually provided a more creative sensibility for me. I began with a fitted bodice and a big fold gathered skirt to a little below my knees, petticoats, and then spaghetti straps. I used a beautiful white brocade that uh, was affordable and looked like a party dress. Of course, I was completely flat chested and didn't need anything to hold me up, but that was the design of the dress. As I was singing and watching from on the stage, four feet above from where the kids were dancing, I could see the girls twirling, which would reveal their underwear. While I was singing, one of my straps fell off my shoulder. Oh no, they closed the curtain on me. Since my career had not bolted to full employment, during my seventh grade at HPS, my parents enrolled me in a new public junior high school back in the neighborhood, Daniel Webster Junior High. It was also the place where I had my first sexual encounter, or near sexual encounter. A girl who wore a white business shirt and a tight black skirt every day, like a uniform, invited me to her house. She lived close by Grandview Boulevard and I agreed to go after school one day. My mother knew where I was in case a call came in to audition. My friend ushered me into her bedroom and closed the door. We sat on her bed and quite suddenly, I felt her hand on my shoulder pushing me down. Her face was very close to mine and she spoke softly saying, I wanna be like you. This made me feel very uncomfortable. So I sprang up and headed toward the bathroom in her room. I locked the door and from behind it told her I wanted to go home. An awkward moment for both of us that ended any future friendship. I never figured out what she meant, but I felt that this was a near lesbian experience. At least I think that she really felt a love or affection, but with a sexual overtone, it was just too aggressive for me. The day I became Donna Lauren is so random. In 1961, I had signed with Crest Records and Publishing Company to sing songs for demonstration purposes that would be submitted to other artists. A ravishingly good-looking Texan appeared on the scene named Jimmy Bowen. His career began as an artist for Roulette Records, 
but his ambitions to be in Hollywood as a producer manifested at this Sunset Strip location next door to Turner Drugstore. Jimmy took my singing serious enough to want to produce me. I became his first record production with a song called Hands Off, arranged by Gene Page and written by his brother Billy. Hands off, Hands off. don't touch, cause I could learn to care too much. Now even if you catch my eyes staring at you, oh don't do what I'm begging you to, you just to keep away from my heart. Hands off, hands off, to stop the air, because your lies might get you somewhere. To keep away from my heart. Hands off. Another Crest artist, Glenn Campbell, played guitar on this rather elaborate arrangement. Glenn also wrote the flip side, I'm So Lonely, with Jerry Naylor. The session was with Jimmy and the Wrecking Crew, a group of studio musicians that everybody who was anybody used at Gold Star Studios. Glenn on guitar, Carol Kay on bass, Hal Blaine on drums. This was the A-list for studio musicians and the team I became very familiar with in the studio. Also on staff at Crest was Jerry Naylor, who replaced Buddy Holly in the Crickets after his tragic death. Comedian Frank Gorshin, later the Riddler on Batman, and Johnny Rivers, who sang the iconic song, Secret Agent Man, written by P.F. Sloan, who, by the way, was my husband's best friend. And this song became Johnny Rivers' biggest hit in the mid-60s. Jimmy and Glenn loved the outcome of the session and wanted to release it on the label. It was then that I became Donna Lauren. Jimmy decided that Donna Zucker, which had become Donna D and even Barbie Ames in my early recordings, must finally be changed for his production of Hands Off. How common it was for actors and performers to transform themselves by changing their names, and for me this change was welcome. As Jimmy was telling a story of his wife, a dancer on the Jackie Gleason show, he picked up a telephone directory. Randomly, flipping through the pages, he stopped and said in his southern drawl, How does Donna Lauren sound to you? Pretty good, I replied, and my parents agreed. Jimmy included me in this significant decision, and it stuck. He really tapped into my rebellious side, and at 14, I felt more empowered than ever before, my dad insisted that I never cut my hair, proclaiming that I could not sing with short hair. Oh, the fear that he was trying to instill backfired. I'll show him, I thought, and locked myself in the bathroom with a pair of scissors and cut, cut, cut. Three inches long, all around, sort of jagged, a pixie cut. Of course, my dad was horrified. But the ambition within him and my mother superseded their obsession. My communication was so poor with my parents anyway that I felt this act of rebellion at 14 years of age was completely appropriate. And you know what? It was the only time I ever acted that way till much later. And this first act of defiance was empowering, but the thought that cut through me like a knife and shocked my nervous system was that success would only come to me through this triumvirate. I had been indoctrinated with the idea that, quote, you'll never be anything without us, unquote. It's not easy overcoming a concept like this. To be honest, my parents were buried and in their graves when finally I felt a release from that bondage somewhat. There was airplay and distribution for Hands Off. I promoted it locally, the usual way of hitting the road with my family and first stop Bakersfield, Fresno, Sacramento, Modesto. They were always receptive to me. 
I wish I could remember the radio station's call letters, but it wasn't until we arrived in San Francisco that I recall KYA, which was the number one radio station and whose DJs generously gave me some spins. Nationally, a radio station in Boston picked it up and then banned it for being too suggestive. Boston and I have serious issues. In my senior year at Daniel Webster Junior High School, my record hands-off seemed to have another scandalous effect. <laughs> I took on a project to produce a talent show that would be shown to an audience of parents and students in the auditorium. It was a semester-long project searching for those who would participate from the student body. After the selections were made, rehearsals began. The school let us use the auditorium after hours. Everyone, the talent, parents, and faculty were enthusiastic about this ambitious endeavor. So when the day came to perform, the auditorium started filling up. Students, parents, teachers, and administrators all filed in and took their seats. Each student performed their special talent. Everything from playing an electric guitar, along with a famous hit record, to reciting the Gettysburg Address. I decided to sing a favorite of mine at the time called Bo Weevil, a song Teresa Brewer made famous. My costume was a pair of cut-off jeans, shorts, checkered shirt, and a cowboy hat. We managed to get a bale of hay for a prop. After the cast took their final bows, I alone remained on stage to do an encore. I stayed in my Beau Weevil costume and entered center stage where a microphone was awaiting me. The sounds of a 45 RPM vinyl began spinning over the speakers of the auditorium. I started by clapping to the rhythm of the record and I began to sing. Hands off, hands off, don't touch, cause I could learn to care too much. Now even if you catch my eyes staring at you, oh don't do what the begging you to, you just to keep away from my heart. Hands off. At that moment, the very traditional curtains that hung from the rafters on this generously sized stage began closing. I wasn't allowed to finish my encore, nor was I given any appreciation for the talent show. An awestruck assembly was told the show was over from an announcement over the PA system and everyone filed out military style. Miss Mary Rank, the girl's vice principal, had pulled the plug. Oh, her name suited her in every way. She was filled with judgment. Her position of authority allowed her to take this bold, irrational action. One time I was walking along a hallway at school and I felt a tap on my shoulder and she confronted me with her horse-like face and explained to me that I was being cited for, get this, wearing patent leather shoes. She continued to tell me that she could see the reflection of my underwear on the toes of my shiny black shoes. How hard could she have been looking? For this offense, I was to pick up papers in the yard for a month, and not which I did, and never allowed to wear my patent leather shoes again to school. This shamefulness followed me everywhere and began at home. As long as I can remember, whenever I sat across from my mother in a public place, she would repeatedly gesture to me in this fashion. With her elbows touching, she would angrily move her hands out wide. When she was sure she got my attention, she would give me a cold, piercing look in my eyes and then look to my crotch. If my knees weren't touching, she would close her hands. This was her body language, and it screamed shame. It's amazing to reflect because it seems so absurd. At the time, it was just another reminder of the hypocritical values that enveloped my mother. To this day, I rebel against wearing underwear. Shame's a word that comes up a lot in your interactions during this time with people, Donna. Why do you think it was something that kept coming up? Hello, Adam, darling. You know, <laughs> we have been living in a shame-based culture 
uh, all over the globe yeah uh, for way too long way too long the um the shame based culture that my my mother became pregnant in um and being from a family that reinforced that um you know n- not just her side but my biological father's side you know mm-hmm. and i was kind of sandwiched in between i feel that even early maybe the very beginning maybe the moment of conception or very nearly thereafter i started feeling my mother's feelings of shame yeah inside the womb you know swimming around i didn't have a you know my snorkel on i didn't have my resuscitator <laughs> you know i i didn't have my angels there you know i i just decided okay it's time to come in for you know this experience and um and then when i popped out and the actual rejection you know manifested yeah. that that just permeated you know my life and uh you know and was totally totally supported by a shame based culture and um so he, he, another aspect of it though that i'd like to bring up mm for sure and this this is a bit uh on the metaphysical side mm-hmm. uh there's another aspect to this um earthly you know emotion of shame and resentment bitterness rejection those sort of things that that some of us come in maybe many of us come in as light workers mm. and the source of light the source of light um ie life you know uh life force mm. um was actually proven it was actually proven by an ex- uh science um study called Higgs boson where they they categorized it as the god particle mm, mm, and the I remember god this. particle ah okay so you know people that um meditate and um activate their pineal gland mhm tend to go into this uh uh light that we all come in with but that atrophies because we you know we're so steeped in 3D that you know we're just trying to make it you know on planet earth and deal with what we came in you know to uh, to function with yeah yeah and <laughs> but the the light that's in us you know it when it's activated number 1 you know physically it mm. stimulates the immune system so as you know the immune system consists of your pineal gland your thyroid your thymus your lymph glands your adrenals you know all the glands right <laughs> and um and when when your when your glands are all activated your immune system is is functioning optimally and you know you you seem to live a quite happy life because you're healthy you have lots of energy that's what light does mm. Mm. and you know some of us who come in as light workers um are here to uh, promote light and to uh project light uh such as performers mm. you know mm. being on a stage and you know sharing their light with the audience um athletes i mean the, it, it it could traverse all fields and within all roles in a family mm, mm. it's about recognizing it and i always knew that there was something that was um guiding me yeah and as a light worker you know talking about you know being deposited at uncle don's farm for you know when i was 2 years old and that went on for a few years and i basically had to you know function on my own yeah well i could see the beauty in so much 
and through the, the the light that that shined on everything brought it to life and i wasn't lonely i wasn't afraid um whereas in my family you know where it was very shame based yeah that duality set in and the duality was fear you know light is love and fear I would say, you know, slash shame and all the other things that go along with fear. Is dark. And and I kind of <laughs> wonder when you talk about that, you know, your your mother, that darkness, if we want to call it that, or, or that sort of opposite, even at that moment where we talked about in an earlier episode where um, the moment of conception, she had very mixed emotions in that situation. She She obviously wanted to be with this man but at the same time there was the, the shame of the time and what she was doing uh, you know outside of wedlock and so on and and do you think that that kind of then I guess manifested into the relationship that you had with her and, and it's kind of really demonstrated towards the end of the reading you did where she does that movement with her her arms and her elbows to sort of show you to you know basically uh, you know close your legs when you're sitting down that kind of that kind of shame based approach to this yes i mean her body language was yeah. uh what was projected onto me that you know if she thought that i was doing something wrong in other words let's take it away from even shame mm. but you know when you come into this life and you're discovering who you are mm. You would, you would really, you know, I'm sure you can relate to this. You know, you, you slowly, you know, gradually or maybe suddenly realize, well, wait a minute. This is who I am. This is, this is uh, what, what, um, what fills me with joy mm. and, um, you know, but, but are you in an environment that supports that? Yeah. And, 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 you know. I think that's something you and I have in common that as, as we're discovering our power is dimmed, you know, the light is dimmed by the actions of others and you're living in that environment, which creates an, a, a, a feeling of survival yeah. and the, yeah. sur the survival is, it, you know, activates the, you know, another part of your chemistry, your body, your brain, you know, into a fight or flight, which we spoke about. And, you know, it's always on. But if you have the awareness, you can have that dual awareness that you're really trying to be on earth with human beings in 3D, you know, and do the best you can to fit in <laughs> and belong that, um, you know, you do, you do experience the shame. It's very, very deafening. Yeah. And you yeah. do, you know, you do understand that the, the light that you have has put a, been put on dim so that, you know, they can deal with you. You know, if you're too powerful for them, you know, they can't control you. <laughs> and it's interesting that you say when you're talking about this idea of, of that flight or fight response, which, you know, kind of always makes you hypervigilant. I think for you, and again, in what you were talking about in the early part of your reading, the, the idea of where there was that inconsistency in your life. So parents kind of instilled this idea of this fear of being kidnapped, that you always had to be vigilant, that um, otherwise, you know, someone would take you. But then it's like, hey, I guess we'll let you ride the bus to school by yourself at a young age. You know, I know, I remember you've, you've told me before, your parents put bars on your bedroom, you know, windows. Kind of, they put bars on, on the windows. Do you want to explain how it actually looked? You know, you had some bars on one of the windows, um, but what yes. happened with the rest of it? You know, again, let's go back to fear, you mm. know. Um, I, I am so sure that, you know, their source of control was instilling fear in me. Mm, mm. And uh, again, you know, I think that that's pretty pervasive on the planet right now mm. in, in uh, leadership. And to, um, to instill even more fear at a very young age, um, 
my bed was facing one window that was to the side. Mm. It was like my room projected out a bit from, you know, it wasn't a flat surface in the, in the front of the, the house. Mm. It projected out a bit. And so it backed up into a corner and then continued on. And in that little niche is where a window was yeah. that they decided to put bars on. And they explained to me, you know, they explained it to me. And I don't know, I was five, six, seven years old, mm, you know, mm. they're explaining to me that, oh, well, they'll, they'll come in through this window. Right, right. But they won't come in through not, the other one. Not the other one that faces the street that has a thin window shade that, you know, everyone that the cars and the neighbors, they, when your light is on, they can see every action you take. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 uh, and that's the environment that I lived in. Um, but again, this light in me, you know, transported me. And so, you know, usually I was kind of tucked away mm. in my room before dark, mm. except in the winter when it turns dark so early. Yeah, yeah. But I remember by seven o'clock, you know, I was tucked away in my room and, you know, and, and they went about their business yeah. doing their thing. Yeah. And I had enough light in my room, but as, as the shadows started coming, mm. that wall that was adjacent to the window with the bars, I would hold my hands up and make finger puppets. I was going to say, I and, thought you'd see the shadows of the, of the bars on the wall and, and that sort of just actually, contributes no. to that Yeah. Actually, no, because that was part of, I, I don't know if it's truly a duality, but I had that consciousness of what they were implanting mm. and what who I really was I I wanted to experience life as a joy and so I moved my perspective or perception away from the fear and went on to the wall and animated the wall with my <laughs> hands do you think because you're talking about having this innate sort of ability to, um, you know, find the light in, in that dark. And I think so much of what you're talking about with your parents was, you know, their fear and they were driven by fear. So they kind of instilled that fear in you, but also that inconsistency we were talking about. And, and we know that, of course, inconsistency, you know, from parents leads to, you know, children feeling, you know, less safe. And I was reading a study on actually parenting styles to sort of talk a little bit about that um, by some researchers in Australia, uh, Catherine Giddens and Caroline Hunt. And they were drawing on some very well-known conceptualizations of parenting styles. Um, there were some researchers, Diana Baumrind and Brian Barber particularly spoke about different parenting styles. And, and what sort of comes up in a, a range of this research is the idea that, you know, in inducing um, you know, shame in a child or inducing fear or even withholding affection is actually a, a parental control, you know, strategy. Um, do you find that to, to sort of resonate with what you were experiencing at that time? Completely. Mm, mm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I always felt like I was on a short leash. Mm, mm. <laughs> and, um, and that, you know, not in those days, obviously, because when you're a child, you know, you just want to be loved. Yeah. You want to belong. Yeah. You want to fit in. Um, you want to be liked. The, the, the issue of the inconsistency and the control is making you feel like you're just not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you know, and sure, the mechanism is fear. And, you know, you can utilize all kinds of fear, guilt, blame, mm. shame, yeah. you know, um, you, a lack of just a, a lack of, as you say, affection. Well, yes, that was withheld. And um, I would say that your heart, you know, really suffers from that. Somehow, if you have true survival, not survival like fight or flight, yeah. but if you have true survival, and you and you do see that there is that light at the end of the tunnel, which I eventually did mm. and found more freedom and more independence uh, at a price that that you you just go in a direction. You know, you you're walking a fine line 
you know, and, and you have to kind of develop some discernment, um, which is very difficult. Yeah. And again, with some of that research I was talking about, there's this idea that when parents set out what's expected of their children, and it's not over authoritarian. So it's got the clear boundaries and guidelines, but it's not that you do this or else, that authoritarianism. We know that's beneficial for building a child's ability to um, you know, develop decision-making skills because they, they get structure for what, what they should do, but they, they also develop that ability to, to think and reason and realise consequences and, and to form better decision-making. We also know that when you can be um, have some autonomy over your life and, and make decisions, you have that self-confidence and you have that self-esteem. But I guess what you're sort of talking about is in, in your case, there wasn't necessarily a lot of guidance from your parents. There was a lot more control and a lot less guidance and do you feel and, and I know you, you sort of alluded to this idea that it took you a long time to sort of learn how to make decisions for yourself D- do you think in in this happening it kind of did have that effect on your ability to make decisions that were good for you or or to be able to um, you know make decisions that were separate from the needs and the wants of your parents the decisions that I had to make was primarily to cooperate with them yeah yeah. And that that led to being obedient. Mm-hmm. Um, when when I came to Crossroads, for instance, when I decided to retire. Yeah. Uh, that came from my heart. Mm. And that was a decision that I knew I had to make. Uh, there were there were times along the way, you know, choosing songs that I could relate to yeah. that really lit me up. And, mm. th- you know, a lot of that happened um, in my teens. But at this stage of the game, I, um, I could read people's energy a bit mm. to know if I was safe with them. Yeah. Uh, that was about it. And I didn't always know if I was safe. I would give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Mm. And if, if, you know, I, if the tables turned, you know, if, if it got a little too dangerous, you know, I would, I would actually give them a little more space until I was absolutely sure. So I think that it was a little more painful than it had to be. Yeah, for sure. Isn't it? And and can I say mm, something, mm, Adam, darling? Yes. Well, what I'd like to talk about a little bit Mm. is that the subtlety of mental abuse you know, is not something that I've really ever discussed that much Mm. or even heard people discuss because, you know, usually when you come from an abusive background, it's, it comes from alcoholism or drugs or, um, you know, some other totally overt form of dysfunction, Mm. uh, you know, physical abuse. And mine was, you know, much more of a, a mental, uh, you know, breaking down of my, as you said, esteem, mm. so that I could be controlled, and 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 the the miracle, you know, if if there is a miracle, and I do believe in them, mm. uh, I was I was gifted, you know, I believed by my biological father with a voice that I could I could actually project and Mm. utilize the light from within me and as I look back and I see that sometimes it just reminds me you know who I am and you know what I had to endure and what we all have to endure in some way depending on how much abuse and you know and what it is but when it's subtle like mm, that mm. you don't get much sympathy you don't get much compassion from others it's like you know buck up you know get over it <laughs> uh, yeah you know <laughs> all the all of those things that's so true isn't it i know we've we spoke about this in when we were writing you know some years ago that this ability to get across to the reader the subtlety in what was going on, that it's not those perhaps those traditional stories that particularly when people think of performers, you know, these ideas of the parents being, um, you know, either physically abusive or there being some, some something else going on. You know, there's that, that subtlety of the control and the dominance and the, and the, um, 
I guess, the inability to form self-esteem and so on because of because of the way um, that that relationship is. And I know you were, when we were speaking about decision-making that sometimes, uh, and I don't know if you find this, but I can find that sometimes when your ability to, to make decisions is taken away, you do look for those times when you can make decisions for yourself and and sometimes it comes across a bit as rebellion because it's this whole idea that you're not you're not playing the game and one of the things you spoke about was that when around the time that you recorded hands off but you you know you locked yourself in the bathroom and said I'll show them and you and you gave yourself a pixie cut haircut um, because the whole idea was you had to have long hair to sing um, so you know almost those, those little acts of of uh, I guess n- perhaps normal teenage behaviour, but they take on that extra sort of meaning when they when they they come from someone who is who has been quite controlled in what they can and can't do. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you know what Maury was saying that you can only sing with long hair. It's very know, Samson that... and Delilah, isn't it? Really, <laughs> it's <laughs> it, biblical. It's so absurd. <laughs> yes, yes, you know. So, but that was like the most rebellious I was as a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. So and, go figure um, that one. <laughs> it's a pretty, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty safe sort of rebellion, isn't it? And, and just to, um, you know, at the time, um, of course, you know, I mean, Hands Off, by the way, is a tremendous song. And I, and, and I know we had the little clip in, in, in your, your reading before. So if, if anyone's interested in tracking down that song again, it's, it's on YouTube and I'm, I'm sure it's on some other places as well, but um, it's an interesting time in your career uh, around that time because you'd had the Mickey Mouse Club, which we spoke about in our previous episode, and, and that was quite a highlight for you to appear on the Talent Roundup. But there was a bit of a dip, as you said, in your career at that, at that sort of time. It's that time when, I guess, you know, going into adolescence and so on, many child performers and, and so on have that difficulty. But, you know, you, you spoke about, um, you know, a class with Queenie Smith um, at Hollywood Professional School where your parents enrolled you in, in Hollywood Professional School. And, and you know, I, I liked when you sort of spoke about the idea of her in that movie Foul Play with Goldie Horn because, you know, because there's that scene where Queenie and another actress, I think it's Hope Summers, are sitting there and these little oldish, unassuming ladies and they're playing, you know, a very innocuous, you know, game of Scrabble until you zone in and realise that the words that they're <laughs> spelling out... <laughs> Are coming out of these cute little old ladies' mouths, but um, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting that um, you know. Just to talk a little bit about you know Queenie and Hollywood Professional School, that was was that kind of the most training you kind of got at that time. Like I I know we've spoken about before the idea, like like your father thinking you can only sing with long hair, so they kind of thought you had this innate talent, and so you didn't necessarily you know need to to nurture it with with class or with um, you know, that sort of development. Was that very much the case for you? Well, Adam, I recall when I was probably in the sixth grade, mm. which would be just before I started Hollywood Professional School, uh, that there was an acting coach mm. in Hollywood. And gosh, I can't really remember his name. Was but... that, um, I'm trying to think, was it John Marley or am I thinking of someone else? Oh, thank you. Thank yep. you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. And uh, every time I, I drive by the Hollywood Bowl, mm. you know, <laughs> I, I, I remember that his, his studio was right along that mm. way. Mm. I recall, you know, going to his studio several times and him teaching me how to fall correctly. Mm. So you know, fall, fall onto without, the ground? Yes. I yes, okay. <laughs> just want to clarify that one. Yes. <laughs> yes. And, and that, that's really my, my only real memory. Uh, I don't recall anything uh, about reading per se mm. until, uh, until I, I started Hollywood Professional School and entered Queenie Smith's class. And um, it was... A, a room filled with, uh, I guess, future career-oriented young people mm. my age, 12 years old. Mm. And she gave us our town to read. Yes. yeah. And that was incredible to read that script mm. and to be part of that. And, you know, I'd, I'd sit in class and... Uh, actually feel like why didn't I do this sooner mm, mm. you know 
this is really fun. You know, <laughs> why, why was I learning things that, that didn't really, you know, make too much sense yeah. to me, you know, before, but that, that, that was, that was part of it. But then having to, having to do an improvisation mm. and stand up in front of the class and actually let it all go. All of a sudden, whatever fear you have to stand up in front of a class, mm. you know, generally speaking, uh, you know, when your name is called and then, you know, it's like, all right, even if you feel prepared, usually your heart races yeah, a little sure. bit, a you might reaction. have butterflies in your stomach, you know, but what happened is when I stood there and I saw all these children who actually were very respectful of mm, me mm. and Queenie who sat down and was a part of them allowed me to go into a space of my own. Mm. And so when I sat, when I, when I was standing there, you know, I was actually feeling the experience of being in a dentist chair mm which was not a, <laughs> a very pleasurable experience. And most people still find that to be the case. <laughs> and, you know, I have to go to a little side story, okay? Mm, please. This was, a, this was another contradiction. Um, probably around seven years of age, uh, there was a local dentist mm. in Mar Vista mm. on Venice Boulevard, mm. just a few doors down from the Mar Vista bowling alley. Mm -hmm which is still there. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And and it's actually quite hip. They they've uh, they've gentrified it. Isn't that amazing that the the, the real mid-century thing, the the bowling alley, that complete symbol that's it's good they've been able to move it with the times. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's American graffiti all over ah, again. Absolutely. And I, I had an appointment to go see the dentist and once my mother took me for the first visit, each subsequent visit, I had to go myself. And I was like seven years old. And here again, uh, I really wasn't taught how to take care of my teeth. Yeah, yeah. And so even at seven years of age, I needed a filling. Wow. Mm. And I recall the name of my dentist was Dr. Binstock, which mm. I called Beanstalk. <laughs> <laughs> and when he smiled, yeah. he had these very short teeth, like tiny little teeth mm. in the song Short People. <laughs> By <And>, Randy Newman. <laughs> and there were spaces between his teeth. Oh, wow. And you know, when a dentist looks in your mouth, there's, <laughs> there's very little distance between yeah. you and yeah. them. And when he when he got close to me and said ah, mm. I would start gripping oh, no. the arms of oh. the chair. Oh no! <laughs> and then he would take the X-ray and tell me oh. what I needed, and I refused to take Novocaine. Oh, I, I I knew that you know I was taking all this adrenaline medication, and I didn't want anything to upset my breathing. So I decided to let him drill. And when I was standing up in class a few years later and reenacting that, I was there. Yeah, a lot of actors, you know, have that recall of experiences yeah. that they draw from. Mm -hmm. um, I never really thought of myself as an actress, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I enjoyed you know, that experience tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. And to be able to, you know, draw on it with someone like, you know, Queenie Smith, who was very, you know, esteemed in the same way. And, you know, a few of the people that you sort of spoke about when we were talking about, you know, hands off that you mentioned, you know, Crest Records, an American publishing company, uh, you worked with some very, you know, legendary um, uh, wall of uh, sound musicians um, or who became later known as the Wrecking Crew, Carol Kay, Hal Blaine. Um, some of those musicians um, from the Wrecking Crew were later on Shindig with you, Ray Pullman, Jim Horn, people like that. Um, on your Beach Blanket Bingo album, um, a whole lot of those musicians played on that. People like Leon Russell and Tommy Tedesco and Carol again. Even a lot of your producers at Capitol, which was a few years after Crest, people like Steve Douglas and Al Delory were were you know members of that group as well as being you know producers 
I guess that was a long way of me giving a bit of a laundry list of how esteemed these people were. So, you know, that must have been pretty cool to, you know, work with, with a lot of them. But did you record Hands Off at Gold Star or would that have been at Crest um, at, at their office, their studio? It was at Gold Star. Mm. Crest, Crest was located on Sunset That's Boulevard. right, yeah. Yeah. By Doheny, mm. which was the corner where Turner Drugstore was, yeah. and but Turner, Turner Drugstore is is kind of the beginning of West Hollywood, mm. and a little bit down the street is the whiskey, and mm. Um, mm. you know it, it enters into Hollywood. Um, Crest was uh, a, a publishing company, mm. so they had their they had their. Uh, written music uh, files mm. there, but they had no studio there. Right, yeah. So, so you know, Glenn Campbell and Jimmy Bowen and uh, Johnny Rivers mm. and uh, Frank Gorshin, who mm. was doing comedy albums, yeah. you know, would assemble there, assemble on Sunset. Quite often, actually, there was a, oh, there was a club between Crest, where Crest was located, uh-huh. And uh, and Turner Drugstore, and that was uh, Pat something the hip hypnotist <laughs> was <laughs> was was the featured artist there. Mm. Um, but at at any rate, Gold Star was not far away from that location mm-hmm. down Sunset Boulevard, and um, I believe we have to corroborate that one. But mm. uh, since but Gold Star was the go to studio because of phil Spector's wall of sound of and um and and the 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 studio itself is just where the wrecking crew made their magic yeah. not that they didn't make their magic at western and united and sunset sounds mm. and mm. i believe those those are the primary other studios in that time but gold star was uh, a medium-sized studio just perfect for a, a small band, and uh, you you got your you know bass, drums, guitar, maybe two guitars, uh, keyboard, um, and and vocals it could mm. be a vocal, you know, mm. main vocal, and could be a group, and that was that was it. And of course, I don't recall the board, but yeah. what I do remember very clearly mm. is that when re- when you record at a studio of that size in those days, as mm. soon as you have finished and you go into the sound booth, which was probably four tracks or eight mm-hmm. tracks, mm-hmm. probably four tracks at the time. And so you t- you're talking live performances. There was very little overdubbing in those mm. days, mm. maybe a harmony, but, <laughs> but it was <laughs> live performance and the energy was geared to that I can imagine. And musicians yeah. and everyone had to be rehearsed and ready to go yeah but you walk into the sound booth and to the uh i believe it was the left of the uh of stan who was uh, one of the co-owners of gold star mm. he was at he was the engineer at the mixing board mm-hmm. and above him before you left he had a um, acetate maker, looked like a turntable, and he would put the needle down, and it would spin out the grooves. You'd see a thread of this acetate come off the surface, and and then you would leave with that, and that was your copy. To Isn't listen that awesome? To. That's awesome. That's so, so cool. <laughs> that's so that that was my experience when I was fourteen. And I would say the other highlight mm. is um, Jimmy Bowen, mm. who basically was an artist on roulette, mm. uh, really handsome young man. I think I met him when I he was 24. Just yeah. about everybody was 24 when I was 14. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and Jimmy was uh, from Texas. Mm-hmm. And he uh, reproduced... I was his first production. Yeah, yeah. You know, he he went on to doing Garth Brooks. He went on to doing Conway Twitty and Loretta Lynn. And, and uh, you know, I, I don't know his. Oh, he went on to Frank Sinatra. That's, That's right. life. Yep, yep. And Dean Martin. You know, I mean, he he later appeared at Reprise when I was a Reprise artist and Absolutely. produced me then. Um, 
and and he's still around. So so you know an illustrious career blossomed in those early times when you're saying the names of these people. Glenn Campbell, yeah, you know he was a newbie out from Arkansas, Delight, Arkansas. Um, Jerry Naylor, who later you know replaced Buddy Holly from the Crickets, and I know you've was, got a story about him too. Can we can was, we briefly t- tell that story? Uh, could you please help me tell which one? Which one are you referring to? I actually have it because it didn't. I don't think it made it into our manuscript, but we spoke about it. So I'll, I'll sort of in in your own words that um, you you knew Jerry Naylor back then, of course, um, and you were looking for a birthday gift for him. Um, I guess in the the sixties, and so you gave him a jade fidget stone, and um, he when you spoke to him probably a while back now, maybe 10 years ago. But when you spoke to him on the phone, he told you, um, uh, and I'm reading what you sort of told me, he said, I hadn't thought about this for so long, but he said that he was dying to tell me that when he replaced Buddy Holly as the lead singer in the crickets, he had put this jade stone in every pair of boots he wore for 38 world tours. While he was in China, Jerry learned about the significance of jade being a lucky stone and through a greater in-depth inquiry, if it were mounted in gold, that would be even luckier. So the luckiest gold setting for Jade for a man, he was told, was the claw of an eagle. So on his travels in Greece, Jerry took his stone to a jeweler and had it set in a golden eagle's claw. He said that after he stopped touring with the crickets, he had it as a pendant on a charm around his neck to this day, as in when, when he spoke to you. So um, it was really interesting. You know, I was still probably 14 years old mm. at the time. But I recall he was 23, mm. and he had been dating a woman named Brenda Bonet. Ah, yep, yep, of course. And who later married Bill Bixby, I yes, believe. Yeah. She also married Paul Peterson. Mm, your friend Paul, yeah, yep. And that didn't last very long. Mm-hmm. Um, about a year, I think. She was, oh God, she was such a gorgeous woman. Mm, mm. At any rate, there was a picture of her. I went to visit. Jerry, because at 23 years of age, he had a heart attack. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. And um, my parents, well, Jerry had befriended us, you know, through our relationship at Crest Mm. and invited me to perform at various local events when he was performing. Mm. And my parents uh, would let me drive with him alone, which was a big deal for me. Yeah, yeah. You know, (laughs) to have... (laughs) some autonomy from them mm. and you know and and he had a, a cute car i don't recall exactly what it was but i think it was a red red convertible fantastic <laughs> and, and he you know it so that was that was uh my uh teenage liberation yeah yeah and and when i heard that you know that he had a heart attack mm. my parents you know drove me to his home so I could visit, and I saw that picture of Brenda Bonet. Mm. Um, it, it the, the, I guess what I'm saying, the significance is, you know, mm. that you never know. The, I think this man was a very, very kind-hearted man, mm. and being in in the business that he was in, uh, and also maybe his personal relationships, mm. broke his heart enough for it to actually rather gradually break yeah yeah i think jerry naylor was in love with the idea of replacing buddy holly in the crickets Mm. his voice Mm. was absolutely beautiful and and could emulate that um you know style of buddies plus uh he also had that flavor i'm not sure where jerry was from but I, I wouldn't doubt that he was from the South too. He yeah. had that kind of Southern, Southern gentleman flair. And I think um, that's probably a nice, nice way to sort of, you know, wrap up our conversation today because we've covered, we've covered the full gamut of this early sort of 1960s, um, you know, the, these, these, these people that were at the beginnings of careers or, or you know, um, just forming them then and, and, you know, sort of this idea that they all came together at this, this one, you know, this publishing company, Crest Records, which is, which is kind of cool. And I'm still thinking about that whole, 
you know that you get to take the the little the little tape home at the or the the little um uh record or whatever you want to call it home after you've recorded live in the studio that's a that's a, a very cool image um i think to <laughs> <laughs> leave our readers with so uh, readers, what am I saying? Leave our listeners with. So um, yes, yes, but it's more or less. I mean, it's it's adjacent too. Well, you're you're reading for them. So um, as always, it's been great to talk to you, and I I hope everyone who's listening has enjoyed and will follow us on your favorite platform. We're pretty much on almost everything um, now. So on Apple and Spotify and and Anchor and a whole range of other platforms. So um, until next time. Love's a secret weapon. Yes, love.